Welcome to the Bike Life Podcast by Warm Showers Foundation, where we will be sharing knowledge, experience, tools, and stories of touring cyclists and hosts from around the world. I'm Tavar Lee, the woman behind the scenes at Warm Showers Foundation, the leading platform for cyclists looking for hosts and to connect with a passionate international community. Find out more by visiting us at warmshowers.org. Now, let's start the show. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bike Life Podcast. I am Taver Lee, and I am super excited to be back with you amongst these crazy times to bring you more reflection and inspiration and discussions around community building and bike touring. And today I have Seth Seth Davidson with me, a recovering lawyer who spent his life racing bikes and now seeks to be a beacon for truth and introspection. And I love that so much, Seth. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I loved our first conversation. I felt like I could have just continued to talk to you like on and on because you use these really great terms about different types of living structures and what you do in the world and the impact that you make. And I'm, I know that our listeners are going to be very inspired by you. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I've certainly been, I've certainly been inspired by my bicycle and by the people that I've met and the experiences that I've had riding it. So let's start with the recovering lawyer part because that is, uh, that's just kind of humorous. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a personal injury lawyer in Los Angeles, and I, uh, for years and years, have made a living representing bicyclists who are injured. And I myself have, have raced bikes most of my life. I started in 1984 uh, with the old U.S. Cycling Federation. I had, I had ridden uh, for a few years before that. And over the, over the last several years, I have concluded that uh, there's a better life out there for me and, and actually a better life for the people around me, uh, segueing out of, out of my legal profession and into something else. And it's the something else that has been a vehicle for some other things in my life that, that are personally rewarding and that have allowed me to experience things and meet people that uh, I wouldn't have otherwise uh, been able to experience and meet. So ultimately, you know, over the course of the next four to five years, I expect to be finished practicing 100%. My daughter is my law partner. She's uh, 32 years old, able, smart, capable. She's able to to, to run uh, the law practice on her own. And so over the course of the next few years, I intend to be spending all of my time on my bicycle mm. and zero of my time as a practicing lawyer. I love it. I think that it's, that sounds like such a blissful way to live and also very evolved of you to have set yourself up in a way that you can um, you know, move out of the day-to-day grind into something more fulfilling. I I hope it doesn't sound I hope it doesn't sound more uh, more successful and relaxing than it is. As as Charles Bukowski, one of my favorite writers, said, um, "Writers are desperate people, and when you stop being desperate, you stop being a writer." And I have been a writer all my life. And for about the last five years, I've been a, a, 
uh, I would call myself a professional writer to the extent that I get paid for what I do. But my my life trajectory as I as I move into this new phase is to support myself entirely on my writing, and that's a tall order, as I think anybody in the in the art world uh, can easily, readily, quickly attest. But that I, I, I go back to that, that, that line of, of Bukowski's, which is to create things and to, and to have, your, have your hands up to the elbows in art and in, and in the production of things that either you think are literary or other people think are literary, or, or even if it's just junk, uh, the, that actual act requires an element of desperation of back against the wall. And the writers that I love the most, the people who whose words stay with me you know, through thick and through thin are always those people. They're not people who have an easy, smooth path, who, who have all the answers, or sometimes they're not even people who are even aware of what it is they're creating uh, until, you know, uh, the, the, what they've created doesn't really even take effect until long after, you know, years, centuries even after they've, de- after they've died. But the thing they have in common is desperation. And the thing they have in common is need. And the thing that they have in common is that they're being impelled forward, oftentimes against logic and against good sense and against the things that society tells us that we should do, but, but they can't do it any other way. And those are the people who I admire, and those are the people who I, in various ways, have tried to emulate. And now, at the ripe old age of uh, almost 57, I'm sort of giving myself over to those things that have buffeted me both both for the better and for the worse throughout my life and and i'm doing that through the vehicle of the bicycle uh, and i'm doing it through this uh, sort of uh, tangential for now but as time goes by more and more through the auspices of an organization like warm showers where i'm able to connect with interact with and and be part of something that that shares a lot more outside sort of the typical wrote daily life that uh, that a lot of us uh, have led for many many years so that's kind of a, a big mouthful but i loved it i loved it and i want to go back to this idea of desperation because that can be who that can be a lot of things for a lot of people and yet long-term bike touring provides a type of challenge that can lead us in that state that you're discussing that is where you're feeling the creative power come from and Let's first of all, let's just honor the fact that you bring such beautiful creativity to the world and share your blog right now so we can we can talk about it now so people can hear it and then we'll add it again in the end. And for those of you interested, we will also add it in the show notes. Sure. It's called Cycling in the South Bay and the uh, URL is www.citsb.com. I have been writing it for almost 10 years on a almost daily basis. Mm-hmm. And like any continuous work of, of uh, creative work, it's got a lot of junk in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that even I go back and look and I go, wow, what a, what crap that was. But that I think is also part of the process too is, you, you, if you commit to doing something every day and sharing it with the public, then you're going to be sharing some good stuff. And then you're going to be sharing some stuff that in retrospect, you think, God, I wish I hadn't written that. But uh, that's also part of the process too, is, is being honest about the creative process and being honest about the thoughts and the ideas and the experiences that are within me. They're not all good. They're not all noble. They're not all worth reading. But 
the practice of uh, another writer who I just like a lot, uh, especially from his his the way he approaches writing is Larry McMurtry. He wakes up every morning and uh, he writes five pages. Uh, the difference between him and me is he doesn't share those five pages with the world until he has a fabulous masterpiece that t- gets turned into a TV miniseries in a movie. Yeah. But, uh, but even that um, is, uh, is, part of, uh, is part of where the, the drive to continue every day to produce and to put out and to create and to not be so hung up on, is this my best, finest, most magnificent work as much as, is this the best work that I can do today under the time constraints and the emotional constraints I have, because I think when I talk about desperation and when I think about Bukowski and his and his uh, and his uh, very honest and very true linkage of desperation and creativity, I look at it, I look at it in my own life in sort of along three axes, one of which is a, a personal background that I had. I, I was uh, I was abused as a kid and and uh, a second one. And and so that's sort of a lifelong kind of desperation that lies within me and that I've tried various ways successfully and unsuccessfully to kind of deal with. And then another, another sort of desperation axis would be the faltering of a 32 year marriage. I'm a, I'm a grandfather. I have my third grandchild is going to, is due in February. I've got three grown kids and just the, the desperation and the collapse and the guilt and the pain that is all wrapped up in, in this thing that you always thought was inviolate, that now it's just in pieces lying around your feet and you feel like you're the one, you're the one that broke it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then the third axis of desperation is what you identified, which is throwing myself out. I did this, this 3,600-mile ride. I uh, unsupported. I left my home in, uh, in Los Angeles, sold all my possessions such as they were. The rest of the things I had, I put them in cardboard boxes, put them in a 10 by 10 storage facility in uh, Pomona, got on my bike and said, I'm out of here. And um, so that process of you know, the first day uh, where I ended up not having a place to stay. I had to wild camp. I, I had no idea how to tour. I didn't know what I was doing. I was deficient in every, in everything except determination. And, and I, you know, I had some, had some fitness because of, I've spent a lifetime as a, as an amateur uh, bike, amateur bike racer. Um, but that desperation of daily going through, I think anybody who's toured by themselves unsupported can, can, can agree with this hundred percent, which is when you're on your bike, and you're touring until you have the place that you're going to stay locked in, you are desperate. Like it is the most fundamental insecurity that mm. people are capable of in their, in their wild state. And something else that I think people who've done unsupported bicycle touring will agree with is that in, in our daily lives, we are subjected to all of this psychosocial stress, you know, dealing with people, dealing with problems, dealing with the news, you know, dealing with just all of these, all of these things that didn't exist 100,000 years ago in the, in the quantity and quality that, that, they, that, they, that they exist today. And those stresses have well-documented side effects, health side effects, mental health side effects, you name it. But there are three stresses that we are perfectly equipped to handle and they're big stresses but we have evolved to handle them and they are the stresses of 
Where is my shelter? What am I going to eat? And how am I going to protect myself from the elements? And of course, where am I going to stay is a little bit related to how am I going to protect myself, but I'm really trying to use that as a shorthand for clothing. But those three things, where am I going to stay? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? They're very stressful when you're on your own, when, you know, when you're a thousand miles from home or you're in the mountains and it's raining or it's getting ready to snow and you don't have a cell connection and there's no hotel, there's, you know, you don't want to stay. That stress is a great stress, but it's one that we are also evolved and well-equipped to handle. So paradoxically, this desperation that you mentioned of being on your bike and using your bike as a way to encounter the desperation that leads to creativity or that enhances creativity or that causes things to flow that wouldn't have flown otherwise is a very natural byproduct of, oh man, where am I? What am I going to do? Where am I going to stay? Uh, what am I going to eat? And I found because after, after you know, blogging on a near daily basis for almost 10 years now, I found my creativity starting to falter. Let's just be <laughs> gentle. But I found that as I began having these experiences and then the people that I ended up relying on and meeting, communicating with, as I, as I would resolve this daily repetition of where am I going to stay? What am I going to eat? Less so, what am I going to wear? I found my creative spirit rekindled. I mean, and, and parallel with that, I had gone through a period, kind of a, I, I hate to say things like a dark period, but it, I don't know what <laughs> to say. Let's just say an angry, very angry period in which I found myself pushing people away and in which it had a negative effect on my writing. I mean, people gave me pretty, uh, pretty clear feedback that we don't like this. We don't want to read that. We don't want to read this, Right. And I found that this process of in, encountering hardship, not just, oh, it was a hard, long bike ride or I was tired or you know, I had a 10-mile climb, but I mean the actual hardship of how am I going to live on this bike today made me more gentle and gave me a voice that more people felt like they wanted to hear. And so that's kind of goes back to that thing that I said in the beginning about desperation being the mark of a writer and that sort of this, this patina of success that I think so many people want to project like, oh, I've got it or, you know, fake it till you make it or whatever the, whatever the thing is that, that we try to, to use to convince people that somehow everything's fine and somehow we've got all the reins in our hand and somehow everything's going our way. That kind of runs counter to, hey, I want to write and I want to write good stuff and I want to write real stuff because the real stuff is never easy and it's, and it's always painful and it's always cathartic and it always requires that, that edge that you can only get in some form of, again, back to, back to that, that word that we don't like to talk about, the word desperation. So it's been very liberating for me, you know, as a, as a, as a lawyer in Los Angeles, you can, you can well imagine if you don't know from all of the you know, TV shows and movies, you can imagine all of the fakeness and all of the, you know, fake it till you make it and all the pretense and all of the outward signs of I'm, I've got a great life and everything's perfect. And, uh, you know, don't you wish you had my life? And, and this just cuts through all that. 
and and it does it through the bike and it does it through the connection of these other people who are out there for a myriad of reasons on their bikes connecting with each other as humans and some of the people that i met were just just mind-boggling um and i think every bike tourist has this i think this is what draws bike tourists together and parenthetically let me add i said you know i've been racing my bike all my life until very recently every time i saw somebody with panniers or a loaded up bike i would look at them and i would say wow what a terrible way to waste a great bike ride mm. and now I'm on the other side of that fence. I come mm. back to LA. I see all my friends in Lycra and I see all my friends in their, you know, e, their, their ETAP and, you know, the night, their you know, carbon wheels and they're getting ready for the next big race. Well, there aren't a lot of races now, but the big next big Fondo or whatever it is. And I look at him and I go, wow, what a terrible way to waste <laughs> a great day to be out touring around. Yeah. So, so that sort of that, is a very um uh it's a it's it's a, a change that has led to experiences and, re and relationships that that could have never happened in any other way some of them are kind of whimsical but but incredibly beautiful let me share this one with you i was at um uh um uh, not the lost coast the name's escaping me right now i'm sorry um i was at uh, uh State Park uh, on the on the coast. I can't believe I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, um, I'll, uh, there there were three other cyclists in the in the hiker biker site. One of them was a, a kid who was 22 years old, and he had ridden his bike from Ennis, Montana, to he was riding down to San Diego. So we had met, you know, that he was. This was a couple few hundred miles north of uh, north of Los Angeles, and. You know, he had he was riding in blue jeans and a and a just an ordinary bicycle. He had a rack on the back, um, and I and I said, "How much does your rig weigh?" And he said, "Oh, it weighs about a hundred and thirty or one hundred forty pounds." And I said, "Wow, that's incredibly heavy." And he goes, "Yeah, well, I don't ever go anywhere without my rock collection." Wow. And I just thought that is so incredible. Like this kid, he's carrying his rock collection with him uphill, downdale, across the you know greater expanse of the western part of the continent, and and he's this free, happy spirit who doesn't see anything strange or unusual or odd about his treasured collection that weighs a hundred pounds going with him on his tour. And he's probably, um, and he's probably collecting more rocks on his tour. Let's just, <laughs> he's probably sure. adding to it. <laughs> for sure. So that kind of sort of whimsical, this is how some people live and it's beautiful. Like I, I hold that. I treasure that the, the picture of that kid. And here's another one, another, uh, um, person that I met that was much deeper than that. And that affected me in a completely different way. Um, a woman who I met at a Starbucks and we were just chatting and she was asking about, uh, she was asking about my ride and she had a completely, you know, completely normal conversation. And, uh, she had ordered something to eat. We went, we sat outside. I was finishing my coffee. She chatted. She was giving me some advice about places I might want to stay in case the airport in Tehachapi, I was in Tehachapi, uh, in case the airport, 
camping into Hatchapi was closed. She gave me her number. Um, I went, the place was closed. I lady up. She seems like she knows, you know, she seems like she's well-connected and knows what's going on and seemed very helpful. And I was kind of, I was in the desperation mode. I called her up. Her name is Cheryl. And she said, let me drive over to where you are. I'll show you another place. She drove over. She's living out of her car. She takes me, like all of this image that I had of her when I met her in the, in the Starbucks, you know, so this, you know, uh, you know, affluent lady living in Tehachapi at the Starbucks. No, she's living out of her car. She's had a series of, of very unfortunate things happen to her. Takes me to this RV park, drives off, comes back and brings me fresh, you know, hamburger meat and, and bison meat that she'd taken out of a, out of a, uh, a friend's freezer who let her put her, uh, who's letting her put some of her stuff in this friend's house. Turns out she has an animal, animal rescue. She rescues horses. She rescues cats. She puts her entire lot in the most generous, giving, warm person who's finding me a place to stay, feeding me and, and, you know, trying to, trying to give me money that she doesn't have in order to, in order to just be a kind person, that kind of thing, it, it, it can't not touch you. Right. It just can't like you, you can't be the same person. You cannot be the same person when you put all that together and you look at yourself and you go, what have I done? What kind of person am I? This -hmm. is a person that has zero safety net. And she has so much left over, so much love and compassion left over in her heart that she will find a place to stay for some raggedy, smelly guy on a bike, feed him, find homes for the story behind the stories behind each one of her animals is just it's it's moving, to put it mildly. So these are the kinds of things that have been um, revealed to me. So couldn't have happened without the bike. Yeah. Now, let's take a moment to learn a little bit more about today's episode being brought to you by BikeFlights.com, a bicycle shipping service for cyclists. You'll enjoy fast delivery, great prices, and excellent service with every shipment. Select your shipment's delivery speed to suit your schedule and tap into their group buying power to get great rates. Throughout the shipping process, their support team, made up of fellow cyclists, works directly with their carrier's exclusive global operational team so that your shipment will arrive on time. Join the more than 700,000 cyclists who have used bikeflights.com to ship their bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence since 2009 and see how easy it is to book, manage, and track your shipments. Visit bikeflights.com forward slash warm showers today to find out more information and to book your shipment. Now back to the show. Let me ask you a couple of questions, Seth, because that was, first of all, let's just say that that was, it was like a beautiful, it was a beautiful sharing. You just unfolded like, you just unfolded like a flower and shared so many different parts of yourself, your experiences, your own personal evolution. And I deeply honor the vulnerability it takes to share what you shared, just shared. So thank you for that. I mean, that's, that's really super important. And I know that you talked a lot about 
And I love that we're using the word desperation because a lot of people might use like hardship, like forced hardship, but really you're talking about pushing the boundaries of our safety and security in order to grow, in order to become stronger. And for you, in order to create, you create in that zone. Um, But let me ask you this question. Even when you're in a peaceful place and you have a place booked for the night and you don't feel any sort of of that hardship in a particular ride, are you, aren't you able to tap into that just through a process of going into the places that we all like to keep hidden in the dark, right? Like the trauma that you've experienced as a child, the ending of your marriage, like just swirling into those emotions. Doesn't that allow you just going into those emotions to relive those feelings and those feelings allow your creativity to flow? So even if you were in a blissful state, could you call in those feelings in order to be creative? I don't, uh, that's a, that's a profound question. And, and it's very difficult for me to answer because part of, part of the changes that I've gone through have been accepting that, that, that blissful state may be different from what, it's been presented to me as by the dominant culture or by mm. my life's, you know, by my life's experience that, that so, and I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but let me just give you a contrast. Um, if I am, if I am uh, in Los Angeles and I'm under a roof and I'm, uh, you know, I've got a kitchen and I've got a bathroom and I've got a bed and I've got all these things um, I tend to think about, you know, what is it about these things that can be improved? You know, like, um, you know, should I go scrub the skillet, you know, or like, I, I tend to focus on things that, uh, on things that don't, that, that, that don't matter so much. Mm. But when I am, when I'm, when I've gone through a day of struggling to get to this place where I can feel secure and have food and be warm, then I have no problem tapping into those, those things that are not quite as superficial as, as like the example, the silly example I just gave of, you know, should I go and make sure that the iron skillet's good and clean so it'll be good, you know, to make pancakes in tomorrow morning. And that ties in with one other thing, which is, for about the last 15 years now, I have been divesting myself of things. Mm. Um, and it, it's, uh, it started with a, a book that I read called Gemba Kaizen, G-E-M-B-A-K-A-I-Z-E-N. And I don't recall the author, but it is the Toyota, it's the Toyota methodology for constant improvement. And it's a, it's a, it's a business book. But I got out of it something completely different. I lived in Japan for 10 years. I, I was a, an interpreter, a translator. I taught English. My, my wife was Japanese. Um, uh, and one of the things that I got out of it was not the sort of corporate message of here's how you can be, you know, here's how you can continually improve to make a better product. What I got out of it was get rid of the things you don't need. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so as I look around, there, you know, at that time I looked around and I realized there were all kinds of things I, I didn't need. I had, 
you know, $20,000 in camera equipment that I hadn't used in several years. I had you know, clothes that I hadn't worn. I had, you know, bike parts that I was never going to, you know, put on another bike. So I went through this first phase of just getting rid of the obvious stuff, but that continued to pace. And, and I, and, and, and I found myself actually able to sort of walk away and take this, uh, take this step to try to live my life on my bike. I found it a lot easier than I would have otherwise, because at that, by that time I didn't have a lot of stuff left. And, um, I've even had a further, further sort of realizations about that as a result of this, of this tour that I took, which is there's a lot of bicycle touring that is oriented around stuff and it's oriented around, you know, there's life and there's bike touring and, and the two things require a whole different set of gear and equipment, yada, yada, yada. But the direction that I'm going right now is wouldn't it be great if the clothes that I were wearing right now with only tiny modification were enough for me to get on my bike and ride across the country, do I really need to have, you know, touring specific A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I think back to this kid who had ridden from Ennis, Montana on a beater bike with his hundred pound rock collection and a pair of sneakers. And I think, you know, he wasn't going all that fast, but he didn't seem to, it didn't, that didn't seem to be detracting from him or from the experience that he was having. And I think that one of the problems we have in the, in the world is a problem that we take with us when we get on our bicycles to take a trip, which is we have mm. a hard time just, it, it, any way you do it is okay. Like I'm not, I'm not Mr. Judgy Pants by any stretch of the imagination. Mr. Judgy Pants. <laughs> I like <laughs> your words. <laughs> but, but I definitely feel like if for you, this tour is a way to set some things down, then you should do that. Yeah. And setting and setting things down for many of us is literally things because those things have so much emotion and experience wrapped up in them. And when we set down a wedding ring and when we set down a beloved pair of cycling shoes, and when we set down a, a, a treasured book, the fireside, the fireside, you know, folk song book that I got for my fourth birthday, when we set those things down, we lose something, but we gain something. Mm. The emotional bonds of that four-year-old child in some way is broken, good and bad. And and we need to be tethered to our past. We can, never, we can never not be who we were. But we don't have to be continually driven by our past. With, I, I, had a, um, I had a philosophy professor. I was a philosophy major for my first two years. Uh, I went to the University of Texas in Austin. His name was Ed Allaire. And after I moved to Japan, I... Uh, I had a, and actually it was after I'd finished law school, there was a gap between law school and the time I practiced, I started practicing, but I struck up a correspondence with him and he talked about, uh, he had had a very, he had had a very, uh, tumultuous childhood. And he, he was at this time, he was a very old man and his parents had been dead for a long time. And he wrote, and I, he wrote this, these two lines 
unfortunately, I can't remember them verbatim, so I kind of butcher them. But mm-hmm. I remember this. I remember if this. he's list, if is is he still alive? No, I don't think so. Okay, uh, been, okay. He would he would he would be in his he would be uh, oh a hundred now, and he was okay. a heavy smoker, and uh, so probably not. <laughs> yeah, but the lines were he was talking about his parents, and he said they've been gone so long that the demons that they were do not follow me now. Mm. And I thought that's a great rubric for the past. You know, mm-hmm. even if you have a great relationship with your parents, it's a great, it's a great way to look at the past. The past has its demons. And we owe it to ourselves to reach a time in our life when we can set them down and not let them drive us anymore. And I think things are one way to get that, to get that started. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, Wow. You, you've talked about so much, and I, I'm not going to recap it, but I'm instead going to ask you a question that I think is our listeners would love to hear is you talk, you touched a little bit about the future and where you want to see yourself and how you're going to continue to evolve. But let's like really look at like what is what is the five-year plan for you? Here's my five-year plan. Uh, number one, spend it on my bicycle. Number two continue on the trajectory of itinerant bicycle reciter of medieval Chaucerian poetry. And wait, you're missing, you're missing words in there. And I've been waiting for this to come out. Wait, wait, you're missing menstrual interrent. No, itinerant. Itinerant. And I, I, I tried to remember it all. Okay. So let's start again. Let's go back. Cause this is my favorite part. Go ahead. I'm listening. Okay. So my, my five-year plan is to continue the trajectory of being an itinerant minstrel on a bicycle reciter of medieval Chaucerian poetry. And I know we don't have a ton of time, but I want to just uh, try to unpack that crazy, that, that little piece of crazy for yeah, you. Cause I, cause I, you know, I love that. I think it's great. Uh, but about two years ago, I began uh, memorizing the body of the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer in Middle English. And the entire work is about 17,000 lines long. And I'm, I've currently memorized about 4,000 lines. And one of the things that I've done as I've uh, ridden from town to town is I have just given some impromptu recitations. Many of them, uh, or not many, but some of them have been to homeless people. And uh, I've been struck by how much wisdom um, from, from the 1300s is still applicable to what we're doing today. Chaucer wrote during a plague, during a pandemic. Um, and so there's just, uh, so my love is poetry and my love, uh, my great idol is Geoffrey Chaucer. I've loved his work. I've, I've loved his work ever since I was first exposed to it. And as I travel, it's my goal before I die. It's probably not the five-year plan, but maybe the 10-year plan. But my goal is to have the entirety of the Canterbury Tales that I can recite it from memory. Currently, I can recite the, the part that I, that I know takes about seven hours uh, to recite. And uh, it's just a way of passing the time and passing on the wisdom. You know, he was a person who believed in truth. He believed in beauty. He believed in love. And I believe in those things too. And I want to share them. And I think I am fortunate if I have the chance to share them on my bicycle. Well, you did a great job of sharing today. So I, I appreciate you and thank you very much for sharing. And 
we should do another podcast where you just recite. I mean, we don't have seven hours, but pick your favorite section. <laughs> we'll just, I'll just hand you the mic or you should just record and send it to me. And I'll just, I'll just put it out there. Cause I always okay. think it's beautiful. I have lots of friends that we, um, we use video sharing apps and we will read to each other. And so we'll recreate long videos of sections that we want to share. We just read to each other. It's a beautiful way to connect to a story is through the mouth of somebody that really cares about what the message is that they're delivering. Oh, that is fantastic. I would love to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Seth, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And we will put the website link to your blog, which is citsb.com. Um, in the show notes and any other links that you want us to add, we will put that there and we appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed making it. Wherever you are listening, please leave us a rating and a review as it helps us reach more cyclists and hosts around the world. Visit us at warmshowers.org to become a part of our community or on Instagram at warmshowers underscore org. If you would like to be a guest on the show or submit a question, please make sure to email us at podcast at warmshowers.org.